Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. November 5th has been celebrated as Guy Fawkes Day in England for over 400 years, and more recently has gained wider popularity due to the successful film V for Vendetta. But why exactly did Fox attempt to destroy the Parliament? And if he was unsuccessful, why are we implored to remember the incident so long after the fact? Today, we'll try to shed a little more light on the somewhat unknown details of the plot. Let's begin. Okay, this time on HI101, we've got Phil Downey coming back for a return appearance. Hey, guys. Glad you could make it, actually. This is going to be a very, very good one. Am I the first repeat? You are the first repeat. Yes, first guest, first repeat. <laughs> are we going to have like, a full cycle of guests now? Uh, I mean, there's. I definitely have some people lined up that haven't been on yet, so nice. We're, nice. we're not just like locked into a, a five-person <laughs> no rotation. No is allowed in. This is it. <laughs> what are you doing exactly five months from now? Oh man, I can't figure out what day that is. Um, I'm also very excited to have you on because we uh, we have a little bit of history with this topic. We sure do. Uh, we're going to be talking about the gunpowder plot today. Yep. Uh, do you want to give the short version of of what goes on between <laughs> you and I every November fifth? Okay. Just a short preface. It's astounding how little I know about the actual gunpowder plot, but basically ever since I saw V for Vendetta, I make a point to watch it every November 5th. And that there is the root of the problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, yeah, you watch you watch V for Vendetta every November 5th. Yeah, and there's always a Facebook post and Twitter, and if I'm even slightly talking to you, I'll make sure you remember remembering. <laughs> And every November 5th, I get outraged at, at the <laughs> fact that you use the the, uh, the anniversary of the gunpowder plot to watch V for Vendetta and know absolutely nothing else about it. Hey man, shut up. It's a good movie. <laughs> it is a good movie. It is a good movie. Um, but I'm glad we, we get the chance to, to actually sit down and talk about it yeah, today. it should be informative. It'll make the, the 5th of November even more so remarkable. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so... We might as well just kind of jump right into things. I mean, I think I think we'll we'll only refer to the movie when we kind of have to because there's surprisingly little there that well, has anything I, I to do. I didn't expect this to be a, uh, a quote fest, don't worry. No, no, it's not going to be that at all. We kind of have to <laughs> welcome to HI One Hundred One, the show where we jump back way further than we need to in order <laughs> to give context to things. Historical context for the win. So. Let's let's be clear. The actual gunpowder plot took place November fifth, sixteen oh four. But really, to get a handle on what's going on here, we have to jump back almost a hundred years. Hey, that's not too bad. I was expecting like five hundred. It's been worse, hasn't it? <laughs> Some sort of pre-civilization nonsense. <laughs> I kind of recall that happening. It's not quite that bad this time. Right, 100 um, years, I can do this. 100 years, about 100 years, more, more like 80 years actually. What we had was Henry VIII. You may have heard of the guy. I've heard of Henrys and Henrys with numbers after their names, yep. Uh, the Henrys are some of the more interesting I English I recall them being a, a yeah. notable group of fellows. Completely, completely random side remark this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today okay. but did you know that henry the eighth actually wasn't henry the seventh's oldest son no henry the seventh had uh he, he was the second son henry the seventh had an older son named arthur uh-huh. and that's the only time that an english monarch has ever named their heir arthur 
Yeah. And he died really young and like really tragic. Of course he did. Yeah. So was there some sort of like holy relic involved? Honestly, I I his only wife cheat on him with his best friend <laughs> to even get married. I only just thought of that right now. I wasn't even planning on bringing it up, but it's a really interesting anecdote. I'll probably leave it in the the notes. Slightly more information on it. Not as exciting as we probably hope, but you know, it's it's kind of interesting to note. Nice. Anyways. Kind of the bane of Henry VIII's existence was the lack of male heirs being produced by his wives. You may have heard a little bit about that. Is is he the Boleyn guy? He is the Boleyn guy. Uh, I totally know like, that he's that guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Haven't seen the movie. He tended to blame his wives for the fact that they were not producing male offspring. That's not quite how it works, Henry. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Fast forward a couple hundred years, maybe take some biology lessons. But... Really what, uh, what what sort of came to a head was in 1534, he wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Okay. Because she wasn't giving him any male babies. How many times does this guy get married? Six total. Oh, boy. Yep. Did he ever get any male babies? He did. Okay. We'll get to him. Was he crazy fans, too? Uh, no, just very sickly. Oh, that's much less interesting. <laughs> okay, Catherine so-and-so. Catherine wasn't giving him any, any male heirs. so-and-so. Catherine of Aragon. So-and-so. Good enough. <laughs> he wanted to annul his marriage to, to Catherine because she wasn't giving him any male heirs. So he wrote to the Pope, as you do when you're a monarch in 1534, and need a need an annulment for your marriage. And the Pope was basically... <laughs> a marriage sick card. Basically. <laughs> no, but that's the thing, right? Divorce wasn't really a, a thing that was allowed in the, in the church. They're still Catholic at this point? Oh, yes. Yep, they're Catholic. Now, the Reformation has taken place. Martin Luther's official split from the the Catholic Church has occurred. That was in about 1519. Right. But England itself is still Catholic. Okay. Except that the Pope goes, you know what, Henry, I've had enough of your nonsense. No, I'm not giving you an annulment this time. How many annulments has he had so far? That I can't remember. Add it to the notes. Ballpark. I would say she was his... I think she was his second wife. Okay. So he's at least pulled the shins. Either that or his first wife died. I can't remember which one. The wives of Henry VIII, I did not make many notes on this because it gets really messy and really confusing. Half of them are named Catherine. The other half are Mary. It's, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, which Catherine? Which Mary? Exactly. Suffice it to say, he wouldn't give him an annulment. And Henry said, fine, I'm taking my ball and going home. Yeah. And went, I'm starting my own church. And oh. I'm... Here we go. And I'm the head of it. What an appropriate question. I was just wondering, why does a monarch of England have to ask the Pope permission for anything? Yeah, because because he was Catholic because and because Catholicism, yeah, not Anglicism. Exactly. I mean, this this whole story today is going to be about Catholicism in England. Okay. That's really what we're talking about here, and that's why we have to talk about the Church of England. Cool. He started his own church, and basically, the Church of England when it started was a complete mirror image of Catholicism. Yeah. So. Except you just take the the king and put him where the pope belongs, and everything else more or less stays the same. So, theologically speaking, uh, while technically Protestant, it didn't have any of the sort of Lutheran hallmarks that were going on sure, sure. on the continent. It was really just a way for him to divorce whoever he wanted to divorce. Can he I said, "I, I well, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> I'm making my own church." <laughs> with blackjack um, <laughs> um, I'm making my own church except, and everything's the same except I'm the boss and uh, you can divorce whoever you want Yeah. fast forward to his death in 1547 and his son he finally does get this son Edward VI his son is nine years old yeah. and takes the, the throne and he's, he's extremely sick and also a child Sure. Now, Edward has been raised Protestant because his whole life he's been technically Anglican. Yeah. But he's also, his his main advisor is the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay. uh, a man named Thomas Cranmer, okay. who is kind of liking this whole no Pope arrangement <laughs> yeah, and decides more to, more power for him, absolutely. The Archbishop of Canterbury, other than the monarch, is the most powerful person. I can't assume that the king has really too much interest in managing the day-to-day of a religion. Not really. It's pretty It's pretty symbolic. Yeah. So Archbishop of Canterbury is kind of the guy. Just call him like the divorce guru. <laughs> kind of. Um, the king, not the archbishop. Of course. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, was one of Edward's main advisors and basically said, Hey, Edward, you know, 
the way Church of England is set up right now, it's still kind of looking a little popey. Let's... <laughs> Popery was an actual was an actual charge. That's a thing that they said derisively. Oh gosh, can it be like papalism? Popery, popery. All right. Yeah, like this, sm- like the smelly stuff, except spelled like a pope. Popery. Yeah. Um, basically, got Edward to make it a much more Protestant church. Right. Yeah. Kind of pushed him in that direction as much as possible. So what you had was sort of this really gentle transition under Henry into into Anglicanism Mm -hmm. with this hard right turn into like solid Protestantism where people started reading the Bible in English. There was the book of common prayer was instituted. Like all of this very, um, very Protestant stuff was brought in under Edward. Well, brought in under Thomas Cranmer, but in the name of Edward kind of thing. Edward was always really sick, like really, really sick. He had constant lung issues actually. And eventually it, it didn't look great for him. They kind of knew he wasn't doing all that well. Yeah. He tried. So Henry VIII basically had three living children. He had Edward. He had Mary, who was Catholic due yeah. to her, her mother. Yeah. And he had Elizabeth, who okay. was more Protestant leaning. However, Mary was the older of the two. And Edward, under the archbishop, wanted to basically disown Mary from the line of succession because she's Catholic. Sure. As uh, one might want to. It turns out that the technicality that he could use to disown her would also disown Elizabeth. Why? Different mothers. Legit. Essentially. That's that's the long and short of it. Again, Henry VIII... Really legit versus illegit. <laughs> exactly. Henry VIII is a huge mess. Let's just kind of stay away from him as much as possible. Sure. So he tried to disown uh, Mary, but he couldn't. And instead named uh, uh, a woman named Jane Grey, who was um, Henry's sister, tried to name her his his heir. Now, Edward dies at 15. Jeez. There's kind of a small kerfuffle around Jane Grey, who didn't really want to be named heir anyways. Yeah. But nobody really took her seriously as a successor. Yeah. But she was Protestant, so he tried to get her in the lineup. Rule went to Mary, who is Catholic. Yeah. And she tried to kind of bring England back into the, the, the Catholic fold a little bit. Sure. Unfortunately, the way she decided to go about rebuilding Catholicism was to burn Cranmer at the stake for heresy, oh. as well as 300 other Protestants. Oh, good. Giving her the name Bloody Mary. Yep. That's where that comes from? That's where that comes from. I love history. She... <laughs> Me oh, too. Me so too, man. better this way. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it too. Uh... Obviously, this does not endear Catholicism to the general public. Mm-hmm. Not so much. It did not make it look like a kind, loving, and tolerant religion. So, conspiracy theory time. Sure. This was the plan the whole time. No, so crazy really? Catholic, Catholic in charge, have her make Catholicism look batshit crazy, and then go back to Protestants. I mean, looking back, it almost looks that way. But, I mean, it's it's one of those hindsight is twenty twenty sort of things. Nope. Mary, Mary truly believed in Catholicism. She was very... And I mean, it doesn't help that Cranmer was involved in a plot to assassinate her. Oh, good. And and instill Jane Grey, right? So, so I, I suppose that makes the whole burning at the stake thing a little bit more understandable. But, but the, the the main mistake that she made was not trying him for treason, but for heresy. Yeah. yeah now treason that's, would have been a lot more easy to swallow. Yeah. There's there's this period of time in between. The early 16th century, so like the, the early 1500s, and the mid-17th century. So about between 1510 and 1650 or so, where the church was no longer united under the Catholic Church, but you didn't really have any assurances as to what you could do personally to protect yourself from uh, politics, Okay, right? Because you had the situation where one day you're your country was Catholic, the next it was Protestant, and all of a sudden the thing that you've been practicing since birth is considered high treason because there's no separation of church and state. Yeah. Question, and I'm asking you this on air for on record, are you caught up on all HI 101 episodes? Well, I'm like two behind. (laughs) That's okay, that's okay. I've noticed, um, this is our sixth topic today. Yeah. And... Out of those six, uh, the, those six topics, this is the third one in which I'm going to mention the Thirty Years' War yeah. and the Treaty of Westphalia. Okay. I think this means either we definitely need to do an episode <laughs> on this, 
or possibly that I should just never, ever do an episode on it and continue referring to it as this sort of mysterious thing. Okay, new plan. Mm-hmm. Combine them both. Mm-hmm. Say you're going to do an episode. Bring it up every time that you, you ever <laughs> mention it. But never do it. Right. That, that is also a possibility. What the 30 Years War... The 30 Years War, in a nutshell, was a religious war. Okay. And the end of the 30 Years War, the Treaty of Westphalia, was all about ensuring some measure at least of religious freedom at least from political forces outside of your state okay okay not to say that it brought around a golden age of tolerance but that there was a lot less uncertainty about sort of changing like territories changing hands people going to war specifically because of religion things like that yeah we are dead in this sort of era of uncertainty with religion sure and we are going to be for this whole show so that's just something to keep in mind. People are really uncertain about how things are going to go, religiously speaking. It's probably going to be fine. Don't worry about it. No one's going to get drawn and quartered. Uh-oh. <laughs> well. <laughs> um, Mary rules from 1553 to 1558 is not super popular. It's not a long time. She was a little bit older when she took the throne. Mary, we're not entirely sure we believe, either had ovarian cancer or possibly some sort of kind of runaway cyst she was it's, never able to have children it's so bizarre that like we just don't know because medicine just wasn't there yeah yeah it's it's hard to say i i mean i, I haven't looked too closely into her her medical history and and uh, we're, we're relatively sure that this is a thing that was going on with her yeah but at the same time you know a, an exact diagnosis yeah who knows yeah. uh but she she ended up dying from the flu anyway it's more just to say that she never had any children there was this big hope in this five-year period for catholics in england that there would be uh, a male heir produced by mary and her yeah. husband because then all of a sudden we're good for catholicism right yeah. like we're set as soon as there's a male heir great line of succession goes through him and not through elizabeth yeah Unfortunately for Catholics in England, she dies before producing an heir. And in 1558, Elizabeth takes the throne. Okay. Elizabeth is also Protestant. There's certain things about her personality that kind of suggest she may have had some Catholic sympathies. Okay. But in a lot of ways, it's easier for her to stay, number one, head of her own religion. Number two, not associate herself with Mary, who came before her and burned did all these at the stake. burned Burn all these people seat. not treason burned all these people at the stake. Like it, it made a lot of sense for her. But I mean, she was certainly um, Protestant and and believed that was the best way for England yeah. to go. So for the previous few years, we'd had a lot of turnover, a lot of instability. Elizabeth ruled for forty five years. Wow. People don't really realize how long the Elizabethan era era is. She ruled for compared to the person beforehand. Yeah. Well, exactly. We have nine years, five years, like a lot of turnover, um, lack of heirs. It's really, it's really kind of unsettling, right? Yeah. Like for like, sorry, the the change indicates some pretty pretty big stability in her rule, then, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And. Actually, I think this was from your episode. I said the thing about how rulers that live longer yeah. tend, to do, tend to do better because they have longer time to yeah. get things done in, right? Let me guess. Things go perfectly fine once she gets off the throne. <laughs> Just like last time. We'll right? get to that shortly. But I mean, under Elizabeth, England really came up as its own uh, sort of political power. Up sure. until the Elizabethan era, England was relatively inconsequential in yeah. Europe. Under Elizabeth, you see the growth of the English Navy. You see the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Yeah. You see a lot of a, a lot more power on the English or on the the European continent. Okay. She really, really brings it brings England into sort of the international stage. Cool. Um, and in doing so, kind of found some more moderate compromises between Catholic and Protestant poles in in England. But there was still definitely, I mean, she made the Church of England the official Church of England. There were fines that were sort of sporadically enforced for not attending an Anglican church. The um, monasteries had been kind of taken down under Henry. So, I mean... Less burning at the stake? Yeah, a lot less burning at the stake. People were still... Considerably fewer stake burnings. (laughs) People were still practicing Catholicism in secret. There were still... There were still priests within England, but, you know, not not openly. They weren't really supposed to be there. Yeah. But as long as they didn't make too much fuss, it wasn't that big a deal. Sure. Okay. Now, Elizabeth's whole thing was that she didn't marry. Still? The whole time? The whole time. 45 years, you said. 45 years. 
she never married. That, in fact, she she held it as a badge of honor. She will be referred to in some places as the Virgin Queen. Huh. That's probably not true. From I was what we know. Say, I really doubt that. <laughs> but she never married, and yeah. she never had any legitimate offspring. Did she have any documented illegitimate offspring? None that I know of. We theorize. It's really. I mean, it's a lot harder for a queen than a king, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 Um, no, I don't know of any illegitimate children, but I, I could be wrong on that. Again, this wasn't really the focus of my research for this one. Sure. The thing with Elizabeth leaving was that, again, we we don't have, or we have some uncertainty about who's going to take the throne. And we it's have... It's like such a problem every time. It is. A, it's a huge problem. It's a massive problem. And we don't have any very clear successor with yeah. Elizabeth. I mean, at least with... You know, when Edward VI died, he had two sisters. It's yeah. like, okay, well, one of them is going to take over, yeah. not the end of the world. Yeah. This time, Elizabeth has no heirs. She's been alive for a million years. She's gotten no kids. A million, 45 plus, basically <laughs> the same. I mean, in the 16th century, she was trucking right along. Yeah, of course. When she started getting towards her end of the, towards the end of her life, she and the uh, the head of state were kind of in talks with... James the Sixth of Scotland, okay. who was her first cousin twice removed, which means that it, he was actually the grandson of her cousin. Yeah. Anyways, they they shared <laughs> they, they both shared uh, Henry the Seventh as an ancestor. That's how that works out. Yeah. So they were in talks, but they were secret talks, and no one really knew that this was going on. This is always great. So for Catholics in England, it's really well for Ned Stark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for Catholics in England, I mean, some of them have been kind of living in secret for the last. 50 years or so but it's only been 50 years like that's one generation there's a lot of catholics still practicing in secret in england yeah and what's more a lot of nobility were actually keeping it up because it's kind of easier when you're nobility to get away with stuff like keeping a priest around yeah than it is for a common person so the nobility was kind of stacked in favor of catholicism at this point so basically what people were hoping for i mean initially her cousin mary queen of scots had been her most legitimate heir yeah except that Mary Queen of Scots had been executed for treason in 1587 for taking part in the Babington plot to murder Elizabeth and put herself on the throne. Whoops. So that's not going to work out. Slight misstep. Some Catholics were hoping that when she died, uh, they could just go to the daughter of the Spanish king as successor. Oh, obviously. There's no line of succession there. The thing is, you have to remember that nobility, and specifically royalty at this point in in European history, is a function of divine right yeah so basically when when you run out of other options like when you know when there's no male heir and there's no female heir and there's no cousin yeah well any royalty can do as long as they've been appointed by divine right so that was kind of their thinking on that spain was one of the most strongly catholic countries in europe at this point in time and they figured well he's got a daughter perfect that'll work sure so for those people who didn't see just any random European royalty yeah. as an option. Hey, you, royal, sit on our throne. Others were others were looking to someone named uh, Arbella Stewart or Arabella Stewart. This was James Stewart's cousin. Oh, so yeah. about okay. the about the same amount of of distance family wise as James was. Okay. The difference being that James was actually king of Scotland. Ah, there we go. Which, well, the James the Sixth part, right? So he's already a king, whereas... I'm connecting names sometimes, it's fine. Oh, that's fine. We, we need someone to, to fact-check this stuff. <laughs> that's why you're here. Arbella was not interested in ruling in any way, shape, or form. That seems to be a common thread. Well, I mean, a lot of these nobles... I, I, being being a king or queen is a lot of responsibility. It's it a kind of, target on your forehead. It kind of or, sucks. You know, depending on what country in your neck. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it can really suck. So... For a lot of people, the ideal situation is be noble enough to have lots of money and not need to do anything and have yeah. a bunch of servants and party all the time, <laughs> but not so noble that you actually have to do anything of any consequence. Sure. That's a pretty sweet spot. Yeah. Just don't worry about Little it. Little management all the way down. <laughs> exactly. So Arbella was perfectly happy being that. Yeah. But people felt like she, and, and she wasn't even Catholic. That's the strange thing. They just felt like she seemed sympathetic enough to Catholics sure. that she could, if she was put in place, she could be kind of persuaded to kind of let up on Catholics a little bit in England. Yeah. 
Because... I mean, how many Catholics are we talking here in England at this point, percentage-wise? Like 50, 30, 10? It's really hard to measure because so many of these people were uh, were practicing in, in secret. Right. So basically, I mean, if you went to uh, a parish um, church, they would be checking who was there from their parish. Yeah. So if you're Catholic, you would show up to the Anglican church and be counted. Yeah. But, you know... On on you know every other Tuesday evening you might meet in your neighbor's house and they've smuggled a Catholic priest in to say mass <laughs> yeah. and and uh, and do all of that for you. So I mean, like if they're all in secret, how come they're the ones plotting who to put on the throne here? Like, well, how's, how's that happening? All of these are things that Catholics at the time wanted. Okay, and we do also have the benefit of Catholic nobles being able to be a little bit more open about the fact that they're Catholic without. Right as much fear of reprisal. Yeah. So in terms of the Catholic nobility, I mean, there was, there, there was a fairly large percentage. I'm trying to think, I'm going to guess between 20 and 30% were openly Catholic. Sure. Like a good chunk. Yeah. But I mean, it starts dwindling. Like it, it definitely dwindled over the, uh, the years as, as, um, as, as Elizabeth put fines against people, uh, practicing Catholicism. So there were a lot of people, I'm including in that number, people who were, well known to be Catholic, but were never actually outspoken about it whatsoever. Sure. So people that, without ever actually saying so, you could point at them and be like, "That family is Catholic yeah. for sure." And chances are, you'd find a priest's soul in their in their house somewhere. Like it would be, oh, sorry, uh, it's people would build little chambers into their houses, little like My secret rooms. Basically, filled in what was required for a priest's hole. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a real thing. People would keep keep little secret chambers in their in their homes to. Uh, basically, priests would go from home to home in hiding. Oh, what a great job. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, they had strong convictions. So. No kidding. Really, everyone who was in any way reasonable about the situation re- recognized the fact that James VI made the most sense as a successor to Elizabeth. Sure. He was the, he was the only right choice. He was yeah. the closest by family. He had the experience of ruling Scotland for a while before he became king of England. Yeah. It, it just made sense. So who became king of Scotland or... Monarch of Scotland. He remained King of Scotland. Oh, so nice. he was concurrently James the Sixth of Scotland and James the First of England. That's cool. So he this yeah, is this is actually the beginning of what you see with the United Kingdom, right? Okay. It's not it's not the United Kingdom yet. That doesn't yeah. happen until seventeen oh seven. Some groundwork's being laid here. Yeah, absolutely. James was also Protestant, but okay. he was very lenient. He he the fines remained in place, but he didn't really tend to send people to enforce them. Sure. He favored exile for known Catholics over execution. Seems a little bit more moderate. He, uh, there, was, there was a line in there somewhere about instead of separating the head from the body, let's separate the head and the body both from the state or something like that. Yeah. Maybe it was more clever back then. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but really, like, he, he basically said, like, okay, you're Catholic. Why don't you just get out of England? Yeah. Like this it's it's just a great spot it's you. just a, it's just across the channel. France is right there. They yeah. love Catholics over there. Just go nuts. Yeah. But from the beginning, he was concerned about assassination threats by Catholics. I mean, this was a thing that was happening constantly throughout Elizabeth's reign. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, we talked about Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Uh, he he was concerned about it from the beginning, and it turns out uh, with fairly good reason. Okay. So we uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll get to those those plots uh, as soon as we get back cool hey guys just a quick reminder that there are a couple of ways you can get a little more hi 101 you can join our facebook page at facebook.com slash hi 101 podcast follow us on twitter at hi 101 podcast uh, email us at contact at hi 101.ca or feel free to leave comments at the website Um, All of this stuff comes straight to me, so I look forward to hearing from some listeners, and uh, yeah, let's get back to it. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hey, hey. And we were just talking about how James had had a little bit of worry about the Catholic situation in England when he took over. Uh Uh-huh. Well... In how many, how, how many years did he last? <laughs> James actually lasted a while. Oh, good for that's, him. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is that within his first year of being king of England, yeah. there were, depending on how you count it, either one or two plots against him. Sure. 
and you get close? No. Okay. Let's but that's not really the point. The point is... Well, let's get into it a little bit. There was there was what was called the main plot and the by plot. Okay. By spelled B Y E, but kind of meant as like like by the side, like yeah, yeah. you know. I think the B Y E is more of an oldie timey spelling <laughs> than anything else. Bi. Basically, what happened with the main plot was that a number of English noblemen, the most notable of which uh, would be Sir Walter Raleigh plotted to basically remove James and install Arbella, who we were talking about before yes. the break. They were possibly, probably, funded by Spain. <laughs> sure. They approached France for funding. They didn't receive any from France. But, I mean, this wasn't just a couple of, like, disenfranchised people that were feeling yeah. a little bit Some misrepresented. This was This was worrying because... These were important people who commanded significant power and resources. The main conspirators were pardoned but jailed for a very, very, very long time. Sure. Mostly because they were so noble that executing them would have been politically problematic. Yeah. So they just did the thing that England does and stuck them in the Tower of London. Yep. Now, the byplot was basically that two priests decided what they would do was, during all of the stuff going on, kidnap James, Mm -hmm. take him to the Tower of London, and hold him there until he agreed to treat Catholics better. How very priestly. I'm sure you can see how there might be one or two problems with this strategy. Um, Maybe. How how well guarded is the Tower of London? Oh, super well guarded, but... Even even just, I, I'm not even talking about logistically here. I'm talking about the fact that they think that they can kidnap a man and hold him against his will and get him to be like, you know what, you guys are all right. Is Stockholm Syndrome a thing yet? <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe they were just ahead of their time on that one. I don't know. <laughs> but, I, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous plan. Yeah, that's terrible. Now, the only... If we're speaking from a, a Catholic perspective in England at this time, the only good thing to come out of this is that other Catholic priests heard about this byplot yeah. and turned them in to uh, Robert Cecil, the, the the or Cecil maybe I'm not sure he's British, Secre- the the Secretary of State. Sure, they basically went, "Whoa, we heard about this thing going on. You might want to look into it." Uh-huh. Uh, these these two priests were. Condemned by the Pope himself. He said, whoa, guys, no. Yeah. Don't do that. Uh, they were also executed for treason. Good. Not heresy. Not heresy. I mean, execution is execution. Plot to... Probably not the greatest way to solve your problems, but... Hey. Yeah. But plot... I mean, it's pretty clear cut. A plot to kidnap the king... Yeah. Is... It's treasonous. Yep. That's that's that fits right there, right in there with the definition of treason. Fits right in. I think it's like perfectly aligned with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it might it's, be in the bullet points under treason. I it may be listed in there. <laughs> so they were they were they were executed for this. This did not increase James's uh, confidence yeah. in the Catholic situation in, in England. <laughs> the Catholic situation, and I mean it. It began to be referred to as such because he came from Scotland, where they had relatively few religious problems. Yeah, and he wasn't used to dealing with this sort of nuanced relationship that Catholics and Anglicans had in sure. in England, which you know they'd been dealing with there for fifty years, and he didn't really feel like he knew his way around. I mean, James was uh, something like thirty five when he took the the throne of England. Like he wasn't he wasn't a young man. He had some experience. He he realized that he was kind of stepping into a bit of a uh, a minefield with all of this stuff. Sure. So he was he was very careful about it and and to to his credit, you know, he he did handle it about as deftly as you can, but it doesn't make you feel any better when you're in office less than a year before the first plot comes from first two plots. Yeah, and again, First depends plot point five, 1.5 plots. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like 1.1. It's like all the movie franchises <laughs> these days where the last movie is in part 1 and part 2. <laughs> really Except part 2 is really silly. <laughs> usually. Uh basically this resulted in a stronger commitment commitment to anglicanism, so he sort of focused more in on like okay let's this is a state religion people like let's take this seriously yeah uh he 
started enforcing the the anti-Catholic sort of fines against um, uh, non-attendance and things like that. Sure. Started enforcing them a little bit more. Yeah. But really, at the end of the day, James is still trying to be relatively reasonable about people practicing Catholicism. Yeah, just while also covering his own arse. More or less. Yeah. That's, that's just deft uh, ruling. Makes that's sense. the kind of thing you need to do yeah. in order to keep uh, revolts down. Quash <laughs> those... Pesky rebellions. <laughs> yeah, I, you just have to. It's the way it goes sometimes. Yep. So you'll you'll notice the gunpowder plot that we talked about, November fifth. Yeah. Uh, sixteen oh five. Seems to be approaching. He, well, he took he took the throne in sixteen oh three. There we go. We're really really close. Yeah, so right there. Next next point I have on my list here is the beginnings of the uh, beginnings of the gunpowder plot. So enter our our main. Plotter, our main leader. Yeah. Robert Catesby. Uh-huh. Not Guy Fox. Not, not, the, not the guy with the, the mustache. Not the guy with the mustache. Now, Catesby was from a noble family. They were Catholic, kind of like what we were talking about. Um, they had taken, taken part in a couple smaller plots and rebellions against Elizabeth when she was still alive. So he had a little bit of a record on that front. Yeah. In... February 1604, he started thinking to himself, what are we going to do about this James guy? Yeah. He's feeling really upset about the fact that they didn't manage to get a Catholic ruler out of the demise of Elizabeth. He was yeah. one of these people that was really hoping this could turn Seems things back around. Seems to be a chance to maybe turn it around. Especially after 45 years, they're going, finally, we've got a shot. Yeah. It's like when a president's been in office for two terms. <laughs> we need change. Come on, Obama. So... <laughs> What? <laughs> that was his thing, right? Sure, that was his thing. Catesby looks at English Parliament. Now, England's been basically a constitutional um, monarchy for like 400 years at this point. Yep. So while the, the, the king or queen is definitely the leader, they're, they're kind of ruling at the behest of Parliament. And there's always been this tradition... Something that continues to this day and, and even continues in uh, Commonwealth countries like, like Canada, yeah. when Parliament opens, there's a speech from the throne. Yeah. In England at this point in time, the, the literal king would come and give this speech rather than a governor general. Sure. So they knew that when the speech from the throne is given, the king himself would come to Parliament. Yeah. There would be the House of Lords. So uh, British Parliament is divided into House of Commons and House of Lords, okay. rather than as the lower house and the higher house. Yep. And at this point in time, the House of Lords is literally the house of all of the nobility. Sure. So all of the nobles would get together in the House of Lords as the higher house. It's not something you were elected to or elected for life or appointed yeah. or, or what have you. Uh, if you were noble, you were in the House of Lords. So James, the entire House of Lords, most of which are Protestant... James's sons, mm -hmm. his nearest relatives, members of the Privy Council, so all of his closest advisors, uh, most of the important Protestant nobi nobility, as I mentioned, all of the archbishops of the Church of England mm -hmm. would all be in this one room for the speech. Mm. I wonder what they're going to do with that opportunity. He basically looked at this and went, wow, that's a lot of really important people right in one spot. So Catesby figures, all right. Let's figure out a way to deal with all of them at the same time. We'll get back to that. And what we'll do is we'll kidnap James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth. Always with the Elizabeths. And we will install her as a puppet queen. Okay. And Because she's, she's a small child at this point. Sure. They weren't too sure what to do about both of his sons. They figured if one or both weren't at the... Uh, at the the throne speech, yeah. they probably dispose of them. They didn't really ever yeah. come out and say it, but hey, they need Elizabeth as the puppet queen. Also so kids, a little bit older, not by much. Lovely. Uh, one was older than Elizabeth. One was younger. Still pretty terrible. And they figured there was this guy uh, Henry Percy, and he was uh, Earl of Northumberland. The problem with talking about England at this point in time is that everyone has like eight names. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll try and keep it as as straight as possible, but. Uh, he figured, it, it was fairly well known that Percy was uh, Catholic, yep. figured we'll put, he, he's, high up, he's high up enough in the nobility, we'll put him in place as Elizabeth's protector, so basically have him rule in her place while she grows up, yep. we'll raise Elizabeth Catholic, presto, we've got a Catholic ruler again. Yep. 
basically overnight. Totally going to work. Mm-hmm. So, he goes to work. Um, by the way, he didn't mention this to Henry Percy. Oh. <laughs> he just figured all of these details would kind of work themselves out as he went. Smart guy. I don't want to give the impression that he wasn't smart. It's just that this is kind of like the initial shape of the plot as sure. he first presented it to his conspirators. Yeah. First, he recruits a couple of guys, Thomas Winter, John Wright, who the first thing they do is initially contribute some money to the cause and to go abroad looking for further support for their cause. Yeah. Okay. Because you need money to pull something like this off. And the more people you can bring in, the better because they also have to have day jobs. They yeah. can't spend like all their time plotting to kill the king. Of course. That's a little suspicious. Yeah. Might raise a few red flags. Uh, Winter finds a, a, a soldier in Flanders named Guy Fox. Okay. This guy has been fighting for more than 10 years. This guy. You know, we'll, we'll actually get to that later, but it's interesting. You know, let's let's just mention it now because it's a really interesting fact. Later on, people will celebrate the gunpowder plot or the foiling of the gunpowder plot by burning Guy Fawkes in, in effigy. Yeah. And these these burnings would basically anybody who was universally despised would kind of be used as Guy Fawkes. Yeah. He became sort of a non-entity. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, it was the the Pope, yeah. when anti-Catholic sentiment was running especially high. Other times there would be local figures, what have you. Sure. And so after a while, Guy started being used as a generic term, specifically because of Guy Fox and burning Guy Fox in effigy. Yeah. You're so. ready for some, some, some shell shock? I'm going to blow your mind. Go for it. I knew that one. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I had heard that story before. Excellent. I like it. Well, hopefully someone hasn't. <laughs> hopefully the last two minutes hasn't been a waste. <laughs> Everyone should come on. We know this part. Anyways. So he finds Guy Fox in Flanders. He's been fighting for like 10 years. He's a captain. So he's he's a skilled fighter. He's well used to leading people. He's um, extremely competent. And he goes, sure, I'll help you guys out. They're like, perfect. This is a big win for us. We need a guy like this on our side. That's going to happen so many times. I'm smirking every time you do it. Ah, uh, there's no getting around it. Let's just plow like right audio, through. Like an audio cue. Ting! Every time you say it. <laughs> well, I edit this show, so no. <laughs> uh, they also recruit a guy named Thomas Percy. You'll know, note that we've already had a Percy. I was going to say, isn't this our second Percy? It is. Thomas Percy was related to Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Right. They went, perfect. We need somebody that's got this sort of connection that can pass this information. So he, uh, he was pulled into the, the conspiracy. They sealed the first official meeting with an oath of secrecy and by taking the Eucharist in secret. This was May 20th, 1604. Basically, they went, okay, guys, we're not going to tell anybody. We are going to kill James. We are going to put Princess Elizabeth in place. Yeah. This is, we're, we're in. Like, yeah. this is it. Still haven't told that, uh, that guy. We can call him Earl of Northumberland just to keep things a little bit straighter. This is that that's Henry Percy that you're referring to. But he still doesn't know? No, he does not know. But his relative does. Yes. And he's going to use this connection for their advantage. Gotcha. Uh, in fact, it's to their benefit not to tell Henry at this point. Yeah, yeah. Less people don't know, less people can blab about it. Yeah. Now, on June 9th, basically by coincidence, I mean, it may have been in the works for a little bit, but the timing works out really well. Percy, the, the conspirator Percy gets named to uh, Gentlemen at Arms, which is sort of a semi-ceremonial 50-person bodyguard unit okay. stationed at uh, Westminster, at Parliament. Okay. So he manages to rent a house that's basically right next to Parliament. Nice. Like, right next to Parliament. Sounds pretty convenient. Now, at first, he's sharing this house with a bunch of, uh, actually, actually uh, some Scottish nobility that have come down from Scotland to help aid in the whole Scottish-English integration thing that's going on because of James becoming king of both. Sure. So they don't have a ton of access to the house in a conspiratorial way at first. Yeah. But they decide to leave Fox there in the house to kind of keep an eye on things. Uh, they say that he's the um, he's Percy's servant, and he gives the name John Johnson. Yeah. As his pseudonym. Not... Uh... Not very conspicuous at all. Not at all. Don't worry about it. Hi, I'm Adam Adamson, and this is Phil Filson. Now, it turns out that Catesby's house is directly across the Thames from 
Westminster. Okay. So they decide, perfect, what we're going to do is we're going to blow the place up. Sure. That's that's their plan of, of killing everybody. And what we're going to do is we're going to buy gunpowder in small increments. We're going to collect it at Catesby's place. And then we're going to ferry it across the Thames in the dead of night. We're going to row it cask by cask across the Thames yeah. and store it in Percy's place sure. right beside Parliament. Yeah. Sounds like a solid plan. Uh-huh. They're actually doing really well so far. Not and. Bad. Like that's that's one of the things I want to stress here. These guys knew what they were doing. Yeah. They weren't disorganized. They weren't sloppy. So, quick question: mm-hmm. If they had succeeded, would that amount of gunpowder actually have blown everything up like they wanted? They did a test in two thousand and five. Yeah, uh, it was more than double the amount needed to blow up Parliament. Wow. They built a replica House of Lords. They put yeah. dummies with um, ballistic jelly and all of that yeah. stuff. They found the skull of the dummy representing James the Sixth yeah. slash first uh, more than a hundred feet away from the blast wow. site. It was the the amount that they ended up putting in there was more than ample. That's crazy. And they were even kind of assuming. So these guys low. actually had a decent chance of pulling this off. They had that a very decent point, chance. At least. Yep. Wow. And I mean, let's keep in mind. I, I want to be very clear as well about their motivations for what they're doing. Yeah. What we have here is a fairly moderate government who's being fairly tolerant of their religious beliefs. Yeah. While not officially condoning it, um, they are being somewhat accommodating. Yeah. In more of a turn a blind eye way than in a officially allowed way. Sure. So you've got people looking at that arrangement, a fairly moderate arrangement, and saying this isn't good enough. Let's blow up a building with tons of people inside it. Let's kill several hundred people. Yeah. And try and pull off this crazy scheme where we install a puppet ruler and expect the entire world to just be cool with this. Not not, Not exactly a noble purpose. Not exactly a noble purpose. And, I mean, things like... Things like terrorism get thrown around a little too easily these days. A little bit. These guys were... Religious fundamentalist terrorists. Yes, straight up. Straight up. There's no doubt about it. There are going to be points in this story where I'm going to enthuse over something these guys do because yeah. it makes for a cool story. Yeah. These guys were nut jobs. Yeah, just some pretty crazy <laughs> going on. This is bad stuff. Don't ever this no, don't do this. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's keep following the timeline a little bit for for the actual plot that we're talking about, the gunpowder plot. Sure. Parliament adjourns in July of 1604. They go on on hiatus, right? Yeah. And Shortly thereafter, in October, the conspirators really go to work on gathering the necessary uh, materials, so all the gunpowder and all of that stuff, uh, recruiting a few more people, bringing in the the appropriate funds, making sure the plans are in place for the attack and the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I'll constantly say is that the mark of a good rebellion, or successful rebellion, I should say, is having a plan for what comes after you overthrowing the current regime sure. because what you'll see constantly in history is a wide gap between the ones that know what they're going to do once everything hits the fan yeah. and the ones that go let's topple it and see what happens yeah. the ones that just want to see what happened they very rarely work out in a positive way yeah they might be able to you know pull off the thing but then there's no order after or i think Probably the best example contemporarily for for stuff like that is if you look at what happened in 2011 with the Arab Spring. Yeah. You had this massive popular support. There was a clear public sentiment towards democracy, towards further personal liberties, things like that. They overthrew the regime in several countries, starting with Tunisia, and then didn't really put anything in place. And so basically the first general that came along with a strong enough army to impose order basically found a free country just lying there for the taking. Yeah. And that's a problem, right? Whereas if you look at somebody like, and again, this is why I I corrected from good to successful when I said this, but if you look at somebody like Vladimir Lenin in 1917 in, in Russia, came in, wrecked everything, but came out with like a clear roadmap as to how he was going to not only take control of Russia, but impose a completely different economic and social system onto Russia. Yeah. 
he had a very clear plan as to how he was going to do that. He came in, he implemented his plan, and it lasted a very long time, and it was certainly not his fault that it fell apart. Yeah. So having a plan is key. But these guys had a plan. They they had a plan. Maybe it wasn't the most solid plan in the universe, but at least they, they knew what they were doing. There. So all of this stuff that they're working on between spring and, and fall is is refining this plan, doing things like figuring out, okay, um, down down to things like what houses they're going to hide in when they're running from the law, down to what places they can take Princess Elizabeth to to keep her safe yeah. until they can get her set up as a rightful ruler, things like that. So all of those details take really careful planning. Yeah. They're also really boring, so we're going to stay away from most of them. <laughs> so we'll jump straight to October. Suffice it to say, there was a good plan. There was a very good plan in place. We jump straight to October. Parliament announces that they're not going to convene until next October because of fears about the plague, so they don't want to stay, uh, or they don't want to convene in, in summer as they originally planned. They bump it back into fall because uh, warm weather means more plague. Basically. Yep. So they want to all stay in the countryside away from the disease. Yeah. Fine. Gives them a little bit more time to work, but at the same time exposes them a little bit more because there's more time until they can exactly. actually do the deed. Okay, fine. So they go to work. They bring a couple more people in, including Catesby's servant, Thomas Bates, mostly because he overheard the plan. <laughs> so they just sort of brought him right in. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of cracks start showing a little bit, but they still keep a fairly tight lid. We're still talking about like maybe a dozen conspirators at this point in time. Sure. It's fairly small. But at the same time, secrecy and mobility are key to their plans at this point, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. December 6th, those Scottish tenants finally go home. Okay. They clear out their work is done for right now. All of a sudden, Percy's house is free to like start bringing in supplies. Yeah. Now, here's where the story breaks down a little bit. Some people will tell you that what they start doing is tunneling between the basement of Percy's house and the undercroft of the House of Lords. An undercroft is just sort of like a big open, empty area. Okay. Lots of buildings have these. Okay. They were usually used... I mean, they, they figure the one in Westminster was probably used as the kitchen in medieval times before they kind of, well, uh, updated things and then converted it into a parliament rather than a, an actual domestic yeah, yeah. Uh, residence. But... I mean, a lot of them will have that as a place to just store things, yeah. you know, firewood, grains, so all that stuff. Some sort. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing about Westminster is that it's very, or at this point in time, it was very open, very accessible. Basically, anyone could walk in there. Yeah. I mean, if you looked like Riff Raff, you'd probably get chased <laughs> off by the guards. But someone looking in any way respectable could basically just walk in. Taking a stroll of Westminster. Not a problem. So the, the, the undercraft was, like, easily accessible. So the, the story about tunneling, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, I, I really don't think it's true. Okay. It makes for a more romantic story. It's a lot more caper-like. Yeah. It's more it's of a... Covert tunneling options. It's, it's very... Options. It's very... Uh, yeah, you, you feel like maybe That's they'll the pull word. a... <laughs> you feel like maybe they'll pull a safe out of there or something. <laughs> they'll, they'll fold the tiny guy up in a box and wheel him right in there. It feels kind of like Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. How confident would you feel tunneling between the basement of your house and another house, or your parents' house and another house? I mean, not particularly. Yeah. Now what if you are, you're, you're, you're not only just doing it for kicks... But also yeah. doing it for a cause as important to you as restoring Catholicism to your home nation. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big gamble. None of these people had any mining experience whatsoever. Yeah. Again, remember Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't work out. No. You can't just dig holes. It yeah. doesn't work out as well as people kind of think. You need proper bracing. You need proper digging techniques. Yeah. Or else it doesn't work out. The other thing is people could just walk right into the undercroft. Yeah. And then see this f hole. Pardon my French. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and why would you dig a hole when you can just walk right in? Yeah, exactly. It makes no sense. Also, there was no evidence of a tunnel ever found. Sure. This whole story about the, the, the tunnel, to jump ahead a little bit because we already know the ending, came from Guy Fawkes' fifth torture session. Jeez. Once you get to five torture sessions, yeah. your information gets a little unreliable. There's some quote about... A tortured man telling stories just to make it stop. 
Mm-hmm. I can't remember it. But oh, there, there's, it would be so fitting right now. There's multiple, I'm sure. I mean, it's it's been well known for a very long time. The torture does not get you very good information. It came from the fifth torture session. So let's just keep that in mind and maybe move on from the whole tunnel thing. Often when you see depictions of Guy Fox, it's the whole like wheeling the barrels through the tunnels. Yeah. As in V for Vendetta, never happened. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and just say it didn't happen. I'll say definitely <laughs> didn't happen. You, you heard it here first, folks. Lusky says no tunnel. I think, I think they heard it first in about sixteen oh six. Anyways, doesn't really matter. It's more just to say that that was the the popular conception of it, and yeah, no, no, didn't happen. Makes for a better movie. It does make for a better movie. It looks very dramatic. A couple more guys were added. All of a sudden, you're adding, like, brothers and, like, brother-in-laws. And, you know, people like that are pulled in slowly. They're still doing it very carefully, though, right? Like, they're doing it one by one. They're making sure that these are people that they can trust. They can kind of take into their confidence. In March of uh, 1605, we're into now. March 25th, they purchased the lease to the Westminster Undercroft. So, basically, they leased it as a place to store stuff. Again, this is not unusual. This is a thing that happened all the time. Yeah. Westminster is a parliament. They don't really need to store that much stuff down there. So they sure. leased it out as warehouse space, essentially. Uh, it didn't really matter that that somebody like Catesby would come along. That seems just like bad planning. We're talking about 500 years ago. Yeah. Well, 400 years ago. My my apologies. But uh, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Catesby that leased it. 2100? What happened? <laughs> Sorry, man. You've been asleep a long time. I spaced out for like five seconds. Uh, actually, it wasn't it wasn't Catesby that that leased it. It was uh, it was Percy that that leased it. Now, up until now, we're doing real good in terms of conspiring and plotting and all of that stuff. Yeah, they seem to have a tight lid on things, except you know that like servant or whoever overheard it. And he's in the plot now. Yep, he's complicit. He doesn't want to tell anybody because he'll get in trouble too. Yep. Also, he was Catholic, so I mean, we're all good. In June, Catesby goes to a guy named Father Henry Garnet. Okay. Uh, he was the head Jesuit in England. Okay. And he had a chat with Garnet and basically asked him about the morality of collateral damage. Oh. He asked him if in warfare, if innocents were killed along with certainly guilty parties, yeah. was this a sin? Mm-hmm. Garnet basically said... That's a really, really tough one. Depends on the circumstances, but usually you're okay if we're talking about war. Yeah. Early July, he has another discussion with with Garnet along the same lines. He's really concerned about the the sin aspect. Yeah. Of the killing and so whatnot. So he's starting to actually have some doubts about whether he feels like this is a just just cause. Um, I would characterize it more as. I don't think he would. I don't think it would prevent him from necessarily going through with it, but he's yeah. because he sees it as a, a greater cause than himself. Yeah. But he's concerned about the fate of his mortal or of his soul out yeah. of out of these proceedings. So he's trying to decide. He's trying to decipher whether or not he himself is is sacrificing. Yeah, himself. His his yeah his 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 eternity for this cause. Yeah. The second time, Garnet basically says, I, I don't know what you're up to, man, but yeah. like, he, he showed him a, a letter from the Pope that was forbidding rebellion in England. The Pope had kind of come to... Because, you know, you have to actually expressly forbid rebellion. Well, I Otherwise, mean, it's totally okay. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. They had, they had worked out over the reign of Elizabeth this sort of uneasy truce between Rome and London, yeah. where, you know, things weren't great, but... The Pope also wasn't being like, "Yeah, go for it, guys! Like, we need yeah. to take this back." No, that wasn't that wasn't helpful in any way for anyone. So he basically told them, "Look, Catesby, no, just I don't know what you're up to, but you got to stop." Yeah. Now a priest uh, called Oswald Tesmond comes to Cates or t- comes to uh, Garnet uh, and says, "Listen, I was talking to this guy Catesby, and he made a confession to me, and he tells Garnet." what Catesby is planning. Yeah. Now, there's an issue here, which is called the seal of confession. Yeah. You're not... As a, as a priest taking a confession, you are not allowed to tell anyone yeah, like what is said in the confessional. Super serial secrets. 
Yeah, you, you can be excommunicated for sharing yeah. uh, information provided under confession. The only way you can provide any information in a confession is if if I, as the priest, take your confession and I go, wow, that was a bad one. I got to I gotta do some research on this before I can figure out what to do about this. Yeah. I get your permission to consult on this. Yeah. I write a letter that removes your name from any of this. Yeah. Removes any identifying details. Leaves only the details that are necessary for figuring out what the penance for the sin is. Jeez. Removes all of those details. Sends this letter off to someone in Rome who does not know me. Reviews the case and, and sends it back to me. That's the only way you can you can share under seal of confession. All that and went straight to Buddy. Yeah, so he went straight to Garnet and said, "This guy just confessed this to me." And Garnet went, uh, "You really shouldn't have done that, <laughs> but okay, I get why you did that because this guy's planning like the highest kind of treason yeah. imaginable. It's basically like treason plus plus. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. And so Garnet goes, "Okay, what am I going to do about this?" He sees. Catesby a third time and does like his absolute best to dissuade Catesby from doing anything yeah. while also not letting on any or that he knows any details of what Catesby is up to because he's not allowed yeah, to. Unless he's implicated and also excommunicated. So Garnet's in a really, really difficult position here. Like what's he supposed to do? Yeah. Now that's that's tough. He does write to Rome in really, really vague terms, advises that there is some possibility that some private forces may be conspiring against against the monarch. And could the Pope please issue some sort of statement or letter to be read by, you know, by priests to their congregations, specifically forbidding any sort of rebellion? Yeah. We've got to keep the peace. That's about all Garnet can really do. Yeah. Is that uh, met with any success? Not really. I mean, they don't really take them all that seriously. Everyone knows the Catholics in in England are a little bit uppity. Yeah. It's not news to them without any specifics. Yeah. I feel a little bad for Garnet. I feel like he should have just thrown himself under the bus. I mean, it's it's yes. easy for us to say that. It's, but... Yeah, exactly. I'm we're, we're we're sitting here in a nice. Nice warm studio, sipping on some water, <laughs> talking about some guy who lived 400 years ago and the poor mis- and the poor decisions he made. Yeah, that's that's easy. Hindsight is very 2020. Right what now. he went through is really difficult. Yeah, for sure. So over the course of July, 36 ba- barrels of gunpowder were hidden in the undercroft. Mm-hmm. Technically, the government controlled the supply of of gunpowder, but it was really easy to find on the black market. Yeah. Like, it was really easy to find on the black market. It wasn't... Straightforward. If you have the cash, you can get the, the gunpowder. Yeah. So, it's all hidden in the undercroft. They went back to check on it in August, so not that much longer later, and they found that some of it had decayed. Like, what can happen with gunpowder is that it kind of... Decayed is a bad word. It kind of, it kind of clumps... Yeah. And clumpy gunpowder, and it's a chemical thing. It's not like you can just bust up the clumps. Clumpy gunpowder doesn't really explode as well. Sure. So they added a few more barrels just for a good measure. They also, at this point, like a couple months later, decided, yeah, we should put some like firewood and stuff on top of it to like hide the barrels. Just in case. The undercroft was really easy going. Nobody was looking under there. Yeah. It was it was gross. It was it was dank and it was dark and nobody liked going under there. Hence the clumping. And there was no reason to go under there sure. that they knew of, right? Uh, at the end of at the end of September, a couple of extra people were added in. We're we're looking at around thirty to forty conspirators at this point. We're never really gonna be quite sure who all was actually brought in on the conspiracy because as we'll see later, not everyone was really caught. So it's hard to say. But the one person I do want to note is a guy named Francis Tresham. We will be coming back to Tresham. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just stifling the laugh because of yet another guy reference. I've done it myself too. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I didn't even notice at that time. (laughs) You didn't see me try not to laugh. (laughs) You think I was just having some intestinal issues? (laughs) It just took me a second to cotton on as to what that was. Okay, continue. Details are kind of finalized in October. They decide that basically what's going to happen is Fox is going to stay under the Undercroft. Yep. 
He's going to be the one to light the fuse and then immediately escape to the continent where he's going to go around and try to rouse support from people in France, people in Spain, people in the Netherlands, uh, portions of the Holy Roman Empire that are Catholic, try and gain as much support for the puppet princess that they're going to install as possible. Hopefully, if enough people support her and support her rule, then they'll have some sort of legitimacy out of it. And meanwhile, uh, the larger number of people are going to go on a hunting party, with air quotes, and they're going to go up into uh, the Midlands region, where kind of kind of north of London, it's a little yeah. bit more countryside, where Elizabeth was staying. And these are the ones that are going to go in and kidnap Elizabeth. Yeah. Okay. So right up until the stand a bunch of gents. <laughs> uh, again, they're. They're religious fanatics. They are terrorists. They're bad men. Yep. Right up until October, everything is looking great. Nobody knows that there's gunpowder underneath. Nobody knows that there's... Like, no one has a whiff of this plot. Yeah. Other than the priests that they've confessed to who are unable to testify about it to anyone because of the seal of confession. Yeah. Nobody knows that they're about to kidnap Elizabeth. And this is October of 1605? This is October of 1605. So we're, like, right up to the... Like, right up to the wire here. Yep. We, Guy Fox has bought his matches. He has a horse ready to go. <laughs> He's, like, this is this is on. Yeah. This is over a year's worth of planning. Yeah. Is all coming to a head in October 1605. And no one knows a thing. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. You jerk. Although the conspiracy to assassinate the king in Parliament had been almost flawless up to this point... We already know the ending. The conspirators failed in their attempt. Next time on HI101, we'll talk about how the months of planning were unraveled in the last few days before November 5th, as well as the fallout of the plot. That episode will be up November 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.